Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So, Anne, it seems like such a long time ago that I had lunch with my friend Mary Lynn McBride, who was a guest on our show. I think she was around episode 15. And she was raving about her friend, Shelly Tegelski, and said, you have to have her on her podcast. And my reaction was, great. I mean, if you think she's awesome, I'm sure she's awesome. But tell me why we need to have her on our podcast. And she shared a little bit about Shelly. And when I got home, I did what any curious person would do. I Googled her. And my reaction was, holy cow, Mary Lynn wasn't kidding. We really (laughs) have to have her on our podcast. I'm going to do a little bit of an intro here before I turn it over to Shelly. Shelly wears a lot of hats. And I'm just going to name a few or I will use up all of our time. She is a mindfulness teacher, a fierce justice warrior, social activist, self-care activist. She was a CNN hero in spring of 2020 for her work in launching the pandemic of love, which was and still is a grassroots movement to connect people who need help with people who are able to help. She's the author of the book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. And let me just say, Chelsea Handler wrote the intro to the book. Love me some Chelsea Handler. That's awesome. Yeah, you and me both. And Chelsea described it as a blueprint for personal growth and effective societal contribution, a roadmap to compassion and radical self-care and what it means to be part of a community and to give and receive love. And hot off the press, what I just saw on LinkedIn was that Shelly is starting her doctorate in philanthropic leadership And it is the first cohort ever for this unique program that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. So congratulations on that, Shelly. And we are so excited you are joining us. And so I'm going to turn it over to you because I have talked plenty now and have you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your journey. Ooh, my journey. Definitely not a linear one. (laughs) Absolutely a terrifying Six Flags caliber roller coaster ride. I'll start off by saying that I was born in Jerusalem in the 70s to a traditional Sephardic Jewish family. My mother was a refugee from Iraq. She was airlifted with 16 of her brothers and sisters from Baghdad in 1947, when it just was not safe for Jews to be in Iraq anymore. And my father's family is completely the opposite. Their ancestors were refugees to Jerusalem in the 1400s from Spain after the Spanish Inquisition in 1492. On my father's side, I'm the 19th generation born in Jerusalem, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. And yeah, so two very completely different journeys. My parents decided to move to New York in the late 70s. I was two years old. I have two older brothers. And my mother was definitely reluctant and not happy about my father's passion to pursue the American dream. She had no such dream of her own. She was very content and happy to be 
held and cradled by her sisters and brothers and be close to her mother and have her children grow up in a very tight-knit, close family where she just knew everyone and, and felt safe and secure. And suddenly to come to a country where she knew nobody, she didn't speak the language, and just felt very unsupported and alone was a very scary prospect for her. And that actually was compounded when within the first six months of our arrival into the US, I was kidnapped at the DMV in Brooklyn. And my mother was getting her eye exam done for her driver's license. And I know it's hard to believe, but I was a very chatty, gregarious, curious <laughs> child. And so I wound up probably, I don't remember any of this whatsoever. I've had hypnosis and therapy and regressive therapy done and everything. So I have no traumatic experience from this at all. But I must have wandered off at some point. And while my mom was busy with her eye exam, and I was carried off by a couple and taken several blocks away off of Ocean Parkway into a low-income housing community. And a woman that saw my mother and I in the waiting room noticed that I was leaving with somebody that wasn't my mother. And in that moment, she had a choice to make. And I think in life, life always presents us with these types of choices. And her choice was to either do nothing and look away and say, oh, not my problem. Another choice would have been to go find my mother, which maybe would have been the safer choice for her, right? To try to find my mother. But then at that point, who knows where I would have ended up. And the third choice, which is what she wound up doing, was actually following these individuals, all of those city blocks, and witnessed them walking into this apartment building and then started running back to the DMV, where at that point, of course, you can imagine all hell had broken loose. Right. And no cell phones, right? Because we're in the 70s still. No cell phones, no cameras in the waiting room, literally nothing. Yeah. And my mother, who barely speaks English, can't even describe to the officers what is happening, right? So I start my book off actually by telling that story because for me, it was a story that as I was growing up was always told at the dinner table or like when my parents would meet somebody or people would ask like, so when did you move to the US? And they'd be like, well, we moved to New York and then Shelly was kidnapped and people would be like, what? Really, as a young girl, I've heard the story told so many times. People are either completely, obviously they have empathy for my mother, especially if you're a parent, you're like, oh my God, what you must have gone through. This is the most horrible thing a parent could ever think about. And so many people would then turn to me and have empathy for me. And very, very few people would actually be inquisitive or wonder about this good Samaritan who had the agency to actually rise up and to make this decision. And so for me, because this is where my mind went, especially as I kind of grew older and a little wiser, I started to think about like, could I make the same decision? Would I have made the same decision as this woman? And that for me has been a foundational part of my journey that has led me to all of the places that I have gone and that I will continue to journey towards. It's so interesting listening to you talk about you've been through therapy and hypnosis and regression therapy, and there's no trauma there. There's no memory of it. And yet the 
telling of the story over and over really sounds like this piece around having agency to make a choice and acting on that choice so profoundly impacted you around something you actually have no memory of, which is really so interesting. Yeah. No, it totally is. It almost feels like a real memory to me though. Like when your parents tell you stories about when you were young, this and this and this happened and you're like, I don't really remember that or all the details around that. I kind of maybe vaguely remember certain things, but I think for me, it's really potent and like very real at this point, this memory. I think I have this like visual of what it must've been like <laughs> right? based on all the details that my mom had shared with me. Other people reacted with sympathy for your mom and for you. And I'm curious how this experience colored their immigrant experience, meaning was this an awful thing that happened or was this kind of an amazing thing that happened? I mean, in the midst of something awful as well. So I'm just curious how it resonates with your family. So my parents who got divorced after 48 years of marriage, and that's a whole other podcast. My parents are half empty, half full. So my dad, if I asked him that question, would say, yes, it colored my experience by showing me that there are good people in the world and that God is looking out for us. And like my dad would have definitely colored it with those rose-colored glasses. And my mother, for her, I know for sure, because she told me this, it reaffirmed for her that her family did not belong in the United States. And at that point, after that happened, she packed her bags and she's like, I didn't come here to this country for my kids to get kidnapped and I'm leaving. I never wanted to come here. I'm going back. Goodbye. And she left. She left to go back to Israel. Think about this, the Sephardic, the Middle Eastern family where the woman is to some degree and to many degrees actually seen as like subservient to the husband. You follow your husband through thick and thin and where he goes and what he needs to do and for his career, et cetera, et cetera. And so my mom went back to Israel with us and was convinced by her brothers and by her mother that that was the wrong thing to do and that she needs to give it another shot and, and basically be close to her husband and supporting her husband. And so what ultimately happened was that my mom said, that's fine, but I'm just not moving back to New York City. So my dad had one friend in Miami who he knew, and that's how we ended up in South Florida. And I grew up in North Miami Beach for the remainder of my schooling, elementary school, middle school, and high school career. So, I mean, we've already heard a little bit about how you went on to start this amazing organization, among other things. But I'm curious in that upbringing, would you have predicted that was the direction that you would go? When you were growing up in in Florida, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Ha. Well, I thought that I was going to be a doctor. I was actually in the six-year medical program at the University of Miami, and I was going to be a baby doc. I was going to do two years of undergrad, four years of med school, be out when I was like 22 and be a brain surgeon or something. I don't know. But I think part of that was like, stereotypically, but there's truth to the stereotype of like the Jewish parents telling you like, go to law school, go to medical school. <laughs> so truthfully, when I think back at it, I'm like, eh, I probably kind of knew that I was never going to go to medical school. And that was not my journey or path. But I was always somebody who was very engaged in school projects and looking for causes that help the underdog. I can really honestly think back to like second grade, third grade, 
And then I talk in my book about really the first time I became an activist, right? And really used that word, which was when I was 12. And I met my friend, Jennifer Hyde, who I'm still friends with to this day, which is incredible. And going to her house, which was super normal. They were like a super normal American family who had a dinner table every night, no yelling. They were talking about politics and about the world and everybody would have a chance to talk. And in my house, it was like chaos all the time, you know? (laughs) And so having that experience of like being friends with her, listening to her parents speak about what's happening in the world and what their concerns are. And then Jennifer herself was like really involved in Greenpeace and really involved in PETA. And so when I would go to her house, rather than sitting around and looking exclusively at Teen Beat and Bot Magazine. <laughs> Although they had their place as well. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. But 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 ex- we didn't just exclusively do that. Yeah. We actually also would take this wagon around and like go door to door and get petitions signed and raise money to save the whales. I remember in seventh grade in junior high school, she and I started a recycling program, which was, again, this is like, the late 80s, there were no recycling programs. It wasn't an inherently understood thing. Like people were like, what are you talking about? And so we started this recycling program, a petition for it and started it at the school. And it was incredible. It was so amazing because it empowered me. It made me realize that people want something to be a part of and that I had this skill set to lead and to inspire people to rise up and do something for the underdog, whether it's the planet or whether it's a person. And so that really empowered me. And that set me on this direction where I realized that whatever I was going to do in my life was going to be something that was centered around being in service to humanity. That for sure I knew. Now, how that was going to unfold was a whole different story. Like I said, my life was a roller coaster. It wasn't linear, right? So in a linear world, I would have been like, oh, well, then Shelly graduated and then she went to undergrad and went to work for the UN and did this and did that. And actually, that's not what happened. What happened was is that Shelly went to school and thought she was going to go to medical school. So got her undergrad degree, you know, in biology and wound up taking a gap year, or it was actually still through the undergrad institution, but wound up taking a gap year going to Geneva, Switzerland, worked for the World Health Organization and decided that I wasn't going to go back to medical school. Instead, I went to get my master's degree in New York in public policy. And when I came out with my public policy degree, it was the late 90s. The economy was incredible, which I know is so hard to believe right now, but it was. It was the dot-com boom. And I came out of an Ivy League school. So literally people were lining up to hire you. And I had so much in student loans that I owed that I thought to myself, you know, the smart thing to do would be to take this incredible six-figure job and go work for like a big five firm in the consulting industry. And then like after I sort of get settled, I'm going to go back to work for like a UN agency or an NGO or do something that is of service to people. And that two-year detour, which I thought was what it was going to be, wound up being a 20-year detour almost. Because in spite of myself, I was climbing the ranks of the corporate ladder and I was good at what I did. 
And so the story goes, it's not unfamiliar to many of us. And I'm sure that the listeners will, will hear this and be like, oh yeah, that sounds familiar. But you know, you, you wind up accumulating stuff and having obligations and a bigger mortgage, and another car and a kid in private school and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly you're like, I can't quit my job now because there's too much riding on it. And then the other thing that happens is that you wind up associating your identity and your self-worth with your title, with your pedigree, with the people that look up to you or that report to you. And so that was a very big part of it. You know, your ego really starts getting in the way as well. So what ultimately happened was that I wound up fulfilling my goal of becoming a president of a company or CEO of a company before the age of 40. And I was 36 when I became the president of a company. I was making more money than I had ever made in my life. I was on paper the most successful I'd ever been in my life to that point. And I was the most miserable I had ever been in my life. I got to that corner office and I just looked around and I thought, oh my God, like here I am. And this sucks. Is this as good as my life's going to get? This is the top of the heap that I'm on now. Like what sucked? What, what was bad? It's very lonely at the top. And I know that's cliche, but it's very true. I think being a woman first and foremost in a male dominated space was very hard for me. It was very hard to be in that decision-making space alone and not having a team of people that I was so used to collaborating. I'm a very collaborative person and I really feed off of the energy of other people, which I really wasn't able to do. And I was also traveling all the time. I was traveling nonstop because we had offices in like 14 markets at the time. And so it was just so hard. My son was in middle school which is a really, I just think the worst time of like a kid's life, such an awkward time. And so all of it, the commute, the energy, the vibe, this uncertainty, you know, I just felt really miserable. And so I started having panic attacks on the way to work on Monday mornings. Literally, I would be driving to work. I would have to pull off on the side of the road. And I actually thought I was having a heart attack at one point. I called my husband. I'm like, I'm on the side of I-95 and I am having a heart attack. And he's like, what do you mean? What do you feel? We did a breathing exercise together and it wasn't a heart attack, but it sure as hell felt like one. So I'm wondering a couple of things and I'll, I'll try to be methodical about this. What is happening to the part of you during this time that wanted to save the world, right? That wanted to really make a difference and have an impact. What's happening to that part of you during all of this? Well, so it's interesting because even in a position of leadership and power within the corporate world, I always made it a point to still be involved in my community. So I was always on boards of different organizations and things like that. But beyond that, one of the things that I really tried to focus on was helping to empower other women that worked for me or in my company and like giving them an opportunity to have a seat at the table take a job on that they maybe didn't think they were ready for, but sort of thrust them into a position of leadership to help prove to them that they were worthy and that they were capable and should absolutely be in that position. So I tried to be of service in that sense, be a mentor and help as many of my employees as I could further their careers to get to know them on a personal level and learn more about what their struggles are and how I could try to help 
them alleviate some of those struggles in their personal life, whether they were dealing with a child with special needs or somebody you know, in their family that had a chronic illness. This was a time when flex time and working from home and things like that were just not really as acceptable. And and I think, you know, having women in positions of leadership, we have a lot more empathy naturally for our employees. And especially for moms, we completely understand what it's like to have a sick kid at home and then yet still have to come to work. It just sucks. <laughs> You're constantly like vacillating between like these, you know, just feelings of guilt and shame and and there's no judgment around that. It's just that that's the reality of, of just being a working a working mother, I think, or working parent. And so I think that on a smaller scale, it was not suppressed. But I think on a grander scale, I, I definitely was playing much smaller than what I was used to. And kind of the shift that eventually happened for me is when I started to think about that my entire life, or at least the last 20 years of my life up until that point, had been centered around goals, right? I want to be the CEO of a company by 36. I want to make this much money. I need to do that. And just very quantitative, tangible things that could be just checked off of the list, right? And I think that in our Western culture, our lives are sort of designed and we're like, we're, we're primed to center our life around goals and to be goal-oriented means to be individualistic and to think to ourselves that we, we got here on our own. We worked really hard and we made it. And all of that's a lie. It wasn't like this aha moment, but it really was like an epiphany that happened in the year before I finally quit my job and left corporate America for good was when I started to think about how I can start to shift and center my life around intentions instead. And what would that look like? What would it look like if I centered my life around intentions? And what would those intentions even be? So when I started to go to the beach on Sunday mornings, because I knew I was going to have these full-blown panic attack on Mondays driving to work, so I started going on Sunday and like carving time out for myself a little bit just to center myself, just get quiet so that I could really tap into like what's really going on and what is it that I really want with my life and why am I so miserable? And, you know, all of these questions. Was formal meditation a part of your practice at that point or were you oh, just yeah. sort of going to the beach and hanging out? Okay. I had been a meditator for 20 plus years at that point. So I, I started meditating in graduate school. When I was in New York, I met Sharon Salzberg. And I met Sharon through Robert Thurman and Robert Thurman, Dr. Thurman was my professor and he's Uma Thurman's dad, by the way, that's how most people know him, but he's actually the founder of Tibet house with several other people like Philip Glass and Richard Gere. And one of the foremost experts on Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism in general in the world. And so I met Sharon through him and I started practicing Metta Bhavna, which is loving kindness meditation and just learning more about meditation in the late 90s. And then I met John Kabat-Zinn in the early 2000s and I started to study for my mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR certification because I, I had a desire and did actually bring in a previous role before I was the president of a company brought meditation to my employees, like in the workplace. So meditation was definitely an anchor. And so now you're employing it on Sundays, getting ready to try to like steal yourself to go to work on, on Mondays. But then at some point the shift happened, right? Where you just decided you wanted to have more intentionality in the work you were doing. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I started thinking like, what do I want? What do I want? And it's not things. I have everything that I need, right? Like, what do I want? And it was frustrating for me because I didn't have clarity. It was just, I think I didn't have clarity because the waters had been turning for so long that I just needed to to allow them to settle, to be able to kind of get back to the core of who I was, who I lost along the way, you know, under this mountain of stuff that I didn't even need. And so I started to ask myself, what intention do I want to cultivate more of in my life in this moment? If this intention was fully materialized and realized that it would really make a huge difference in my life. And what I realized was that what I was missing in my life was connection and community because I am a very communal person. As I said, I thrive on the energy of others and feed off of that energy. And I felt very alone at that time. And I, again, not to say that I don't have fabulous friends and people who've shown up for me throughout my life, but as I got busier and I was traveling, I just wasn't connecting with them. And so my solution to that was let me invite people to come on Sunday morning to meditate with me. Let's see what happens. Let's just put a post up on Facebook, which I did. And I just said, you know, I meditate on Sunday mornings at 8.30 at this place in Hollywood Beach. And you want to come or you don't know how to meditate and you want to learn how to meditate, I'll guide you through a meditation. And 12 people showed up on that first Sunday in November of 2015. And what was pretty amazing is that it was just this incredible experience of connection and it fed something in my soul that immediately resonated so loudly with me so deeply that I thought, ah, okay, okay. I'm onto something like this. This felt really good. I can't put my finger on it, but I know that this is right. And it feels really nice to to have this like space and to co-create this safe space. And so let's do it again. Let's meet again. And so this group kept gathering and it kept growing in size until six months later, we had close to 1500 people gathered Wow. At the beach. <laughs> yeah. Where we were shut down by police because emergency vehicles couldn't get through on the sand because we literally had people from the dunes to the ocean. <laughs> you have this really funny part in your book where you talk about you've done this a few times and you come home and you tell your husband, I need to get a mic. And he's like, what do you need a mic for? And you're like, well, there's so many people coming. And then you come home a month later and you're like, I need to get an amp. people can't hear me just through the mic, right? And in pretty short order, you had this massive community of people showing up to meditate. And I'm curious how or if that experience teed you up for ultimately what happened with the pandemic of love. If you could talk a little bit about that. So first of all, you know, yes, we had this massive community, which first and foremost, teed me up to recognize and realize that I had this like calling and that the universe was trying to tell me something and I needed to listen. Again, I didn't know where it was going to lead. I didn't have a game plan. I I wasn't like, okay, now I'm going to monetize this and start charging people on Sunday mornings. You know, it wasn't that. I just know that what I'm doing Monday through Friday is not, is not cutting it. And this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And so that community gave me the strength to quit my job. Of course, with 
the help of my husband and friends who helped along the way. And one incredible friend who offered me a safety net, which I don't know that I would have left the the job if she didn't say to me, you know, she was a, a, a business owner, my friend, Rachel. And she said, I will hire you if you fail at whatever you're doing, you'll never be destitute. If you need a place to land, I know it's not where you want to land per se, but like you will always have a place. And so that was really incredibly important, you know? Well, and what a beautiful gift. I mean, amazing. Oh yeah. A huge gift, a huge gift. It was really what helped push me out of the nest. What ultimately happened, that community gathered for for close to five years. What shut it down eventually was the pandemic, obviously. You know, we would we then moved to gather online and then and then I left the state of Florida. So I just recently did a pop-up actually when I was there in September and like a lot of people showed up. It was really cool because I was like, will anybody even show up? It's been like two and a half years, and people did. And so it was pretty cool. But I really started getting to know people getting to know their personal stories, like the regulars, people who would come to the beach every Sunday or very frequently, getting to know their families, getting to know their stories and their angst and their hardships and their successes and everything else. Almost like if you're a rabbi or a minister, priest, you know, you get to know the people in your congregation. So that's really what I liken it to. And having that connection with people gives them this measure of comfort to be vulnerable with you and being able to create a safe space for them to do what I believe is one of the hardest things for people to do in general, which is ask for help. And a lot of times people also wouldn't ask for help, but but I would know based on their stories or know based on somebody else in the community telling me that, you know, so-and-so lost their job or and they're having a hard time making rent or somebody had a death in the family or somebody was just diagnosed with cancer, et cetera. And so our community started to create this mutual aid, very informal, but very closed network. So only for people within the community, mutual aid platform, if you will. I mean, we're, we're again, very informal. So it wasn't really a platform at the time, but it was more like a spreadsheet, <laughs> right? So it was like, oh, Susie needs a ride because she's not allowed to drive because she's on medication. So we're who can drive Susie to meditation on Sunday morning? Oh, I can do it. Okay, great. It was very much like that. And people just showing up for each other. And then ultimately, we started to also start showing up for the community at large when there were certain times of the year, whether it's the holidays or back to school, or if there was a hurricane, you live in South Florida, you get hurricanes quite often and people need help with sheltering at home, having enough supplies. Again, things that many people can take for granted. If you can just go to the store and buy enough supplies for yourself, right? And so when the pandemic happened in March of 2020 and Florida was finally going to shut down, and we got to learn about the fact that there was going to be shelter and home orders, I started getting a lot of text messages and emails from our community members saying, I'm really stressed out. I don't have enough money to put food in my fridge. Like we thought erroneously, of course, in those early days, because nobody knew the better that, oh, this was going to be like a week or two. <laughs> nobody knew how long this was going to last, we all right? that, yep. <laughs> So I was like, yeah, okay, we can figure out a way to help this person for like a week or two with a supermarket gift card and 
and fill their fridge. Oh, this person needs a hotspot because they don't have Wi-Fi at home or they can't afford it. Or, oh, this person's kid needs a computer so that they could still attend school on Zoom. And so suddenly I found myself at this intersection of like a lot of despair and angst and fear and everything else that was bubbling up for all of us at that time. But I also found myself the recipient of an incredible amount of hope and love and generosity from the people in our community whose lives really weren't going to change that much, right? Financially, or had the ability to comfortably shelter in home and not necessarily be as affected in the sense of like, not having enough, right? I'm not talking about mentally affected, right? But just not having enough. And so people would ask me like, I really want to help people in our community. How could I help? And so at that moment, and this is how the meditation really started leading me down this path or this aha moment or something that I like to call the after the rain practice. So meditation teachers and and specifically Tara Brock likes to teach the, the RAIN acronym very often. And RAIN is recognize what the issue is, what you're feeling, name it, or as Dr. Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it. And then the A is allow, allow without judgment, allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. And the I is investigate, like, why are you feeling it? And the N is nurture, which is like really just tending to yourself, tending to your heart. Where does it hurt? Asking that question, where does it hurt? And I love that practice so much because it helps you sort of in a very clear way, ground yourself, answer some really important questions, and then offer yourself self-love and self-compassion. And it's beautiful. But for me, I always felt like that's it. So I just offer myself self-compassion. And then like, what about all the other people that are also suffering and like are feeling the same thing? What, What about them? And so for me, you know, the practice doesn't end at the end. Once I'm okay, right? Once my my sense of stability is there, I can then move to a place of asking like, what can I tangibly do about this thing that I investigated, that I labeled, that is causing me fear, or angst, or despair, or outrage, or whatever it is, right? What can I tangibly do about it? How do I to use the Buddhist proverb, how do I tend to the area of the garden that I could reach? Mm, I love that. Even if it's just people that are like in my immediate circle of influence, right? How do I make sure that they're okay, that they have enough? And so I asked myself that question from a communal perspective in those early days of the pandemic. And the follow-up question, which is very important, is And how do I come from a place of love? And the reason that that follow-up question is really important, what I've learned, especially as, and again, into the stereotypes as an Israeli, and Israelis tend to have bad tempers. (laughs) And so as somebody who like can identify anger and then maybe say, I'm going to do this about feeling angry, you know? And sometimes it's not always the most productive response that you have. It's not always the most productive thing you can do that tends to the area of the garden that you can reach, but it actually can can completely destroy the garden, actually. 
So that's the litmus test is, am I coming from a place of love? And if I have to think about it for too long, I'm probably not coming from a place of love. So I scrap that idea and I go back to the drawing board. And that's really how, you know, I started to think about creating a more formal way for our community originally to transact so that I was, wouldn't be the middleman. Because I knew at that moment of the, those early days of the pandemic that yes, people needed financial help, but I also knew that people needed connection, that people were scared, they were lonely. And so that's the thing about Pandemic of Love I think that I'm the most proud of, right? Is that there is no middleman. There's a person in need and then a donor. And then as the donor, you are driving the bus. You in order to transact with the person in need, i.e. pay their phone bill or, you know, put gas in their car, what have you, you have to pick up the phone and call that person and talk to them. This is such an interesting differentiator between what Pandemic of Love has done and what a lot of nonprofits do. And so I'm super curious about the inspiration for that connection, because, you know, all of us at different times in our lives will write a check to something and feel good about ourselves or, or whatever, but this is quite personal. And so I'm super interested to hear a bit more about that. Well, I think for me, the first thing is, is that I do want to say that Pandemic of Love is not a nonprofit. We've resisted becoming a nonprofit. In fact, Forbes called us a nonprofit disruptor, which I love. I love that we're disrupting the nonprofit industry. That's actually what I'm going to study in my PhD is, is, is really take a look at mutual aid and how it's disrupting traditional nonprofits and disrupting the, the industrial complex of philanthropy, which is really what it's become. But again, I go back to the point of, of saying that I think that one of the things I learned very early on as a girl born in Jerusalem who is Jewish and was raised as pretty much an Orthodox Jew, I learned very early on that it's only through proximity that we can bridge divides between people. And I think part of the problem that we have in this technological age that we're living in, where we seem to think that we are more connected than we've ever been before, is actually that we are more disconnected from each other than we've ever been before. And, you know, my husband and I live a nomadic life now, and we travel across the country by car at least three times a year. And I love traveling across the country by car because we stop in every little small town USA that you can think of. And we stay in the hotels and go to the local bar and we go to the diner and we sit down and we talk to people and we learn about these people that are others that if I watch the news, I could already have a narrative and a story that I tell myself about these people from Oklahoma, right? In this city. But rather when I go there and I sit down and I talk to those people, I realize that we have so much in common and that if we could only connect from a point of empathy and create proximity, we wouldn't feel so polarized anymore. We would suddenly be able to and willing to have these conversations again. And that's really what Pandemic of Love sought to do in those early days and to this day is to create these incredible connections across generations, across racial divides, perceived racial divides, 
perceived political divides. You know, and I share a letter in the book as well from a woman named Eileen in New York who describes herself as a liberal hippie Jew. (laughs) And she was connected in the early days to a woman named Christine in Mobile, Alabama. They had nothing in common. Eileen was furious with us and actually offended that we would connect her to somebody who voted for somebody that wants to harm her and harm her community. And like, how dare you? And I'm just trying to do something good. And, you know, we challenged her to basically look inside of herself and to, in spite of her very difficult emotions that she was feeling, continue with the transaction and see what happens. And in the end, these two women wound up becoming friends. And it's such a beautiful story about how I think we are just stuck in this time and this narrative that we can't reach out to the other quote unquote side because we fail to realize that there is no other side. Right. right. We are all one. Right. But, but, and it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, I mentioned Dan Siegel earlier, but he just wrote this incredible book, which I'm going to give him a plug for the book called intra connection, which is a word he invented and trademarked, <laughs> right? Not interconnection, but intra connection. And the difference is, is that if you're interconnected, you are seeing yourself as two separate entities or multiple entities that are completely just separate organisms. If you're interconnected, you are part of one larger organism and you're just one piece of it. And so he frames for us this term called MWE, M-W-E, right? Which is me plus we equals MWE. And we are intraconnected. And when we start to like shift our thoughts and our understanding of the role that we play in this world and how intraconnected we are, how interconnected I am, this person in a diner in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it completely shifts. It's like this radical shift for you about what your role is in this world and how truly if we are willing to connect on an empathetic level, we can move humanity forward collectively. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. Well, Shelley, I have 20 other questions I want to ask you, but we don't (laughs) have enough time to ask all those questions. So I'm going to ask one last question, which is if you could go back in time and have a conversation with little Shelley, who is already connecting with her huge heart and already wanting to change the world, what words of wisdom would you whisper in her ear? I would say all your life, you thought there was something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm. Beautiful. I love Mm. that. I think everybody needs to hear that. Yeah. Right. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for joining us today. For everybody listening, we're hoping in the season of Valentine's Day that Shelly's story of the pandemic of love and the desire to create proximity really inspires you to share your own love in your own communities. We'll have links in the show notes to the Pandemic of Love website, as well as Shelly's book, Sit Down to Rise Up, and all the ways you can find her online. 
So that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.